Alright guys, today I had this really original idea that I came up with all by myself. And we're going to talk about illithids and otherworldly. So, what's your favorite planet? Uh, my favorite planet is Earth. <laughs> I too am quite partial to it. I love, because wait, I think Earth is the perfect planet. In perfect balance between tundras and jungles and forests and deserts and oceans. You can just be in absolute freezing misery on Mars. Or you can be in a complete hellscape on Mercury. Or you can be in the perfect planet. And one day I will rule the perfect planet. I do agree. I, like, Earth is, is pretty cool. I mean, you're going to have some competition for ruling. Can we just get it out of the way now? Dave's all about Uranus. There we go. Next. <laughs> I, keep moving. Yeah. Okay. Was that what you were worried? Is that what you were I'm going? comfortable with it. I bet you are. I'm comfortable with Uranus. <laughs> I'm just going to look ahead when I say that one. So I'm not looking at anybody. My uh, uh, physics teacher always told me to pronounce it Uranus. But whatever. Yeah, but is it you say things weird sometimes? I guess, no, no, yeah. I heard that too. But then you're just saying urine, like it's a loose loser. <laughs> yeah, like you can't, That's right. Yeah. It's a mimic, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on the big bad evil guys of Dungeons and Dragons that we like to call portfolios. I'm Adam, and with me today are Dave and Terry, and this episode is called Illithids, Picking Your Brain About Food. We've previously covered Beholders, the Elder Elementals, Celestials, High-Powered Constructs, and some of the biggest, nastiest monstrosities from both the Forgotten Realms and the Magic the Gathering campaign settings. For all of these and more, including a buttload of humanoid mob monsters and a whole pile of fiends, you can jump over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can check out our YouTube page and playlist on monsters that we've built there. This episode, though, is going to pick up where we left off during our last monster episode on Illithids. Episode 133 covered the basics of what Mind Flayers are, what they want, and how they interact with Ulitharids and Elder Brains. But today, we're going to get even weirder. Terry, you were on the last Illithid episode with me, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you like Mind Flayers? I or, do now. Yeah. Are they, You don't like the ugly creatures as a general rule. That's right. Yeah, I know. You have, like, you've gone on record a couple of so times. It's so shallow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's because I get so immersed in the game, I imagine being there, and I'm like, this is disgusting. I don't want to be in front of this because I get so involved in it. But you're I on board with tentacle monsters? Uh, well, yeah, see, now you make it, yeah, and I'll put my foot in it here. I do like, I, I love illithids. How do you say it? Illithids. Illithids. I always yeah. want to say illithid. Illithid. Yeah, me as well. I love illithids, um, especially now that we've explored them in more detail and I have much more inspiration with them. Uh, I really enjoy them. Dave, you fan? I mean, I've only come up against a Mind Flayer once and it disintegrated me. So that wasn't a great experience. I kind of dislike them. That was <laughs> that was supposed to happen, though. So. I, you know what? I, I believe that that's true. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I know I'm doing Dungeon of the Mad Mage and I know that there's a whole level based on this. So, yeah, I'm into it. I, I want to see what's coming. Well... Just to summarize really quickly from the last episode, Mind Flayers, or Illithids, or Illithids, uh, are aliens from the Far Realms whose empire is in disarray. They've built colonies deep in the Underdark where they're trying to reestablish their former glory. They are mostly humanoid except for their purplish rubbery skin and their large squid heads. They have psionic powers which incapacitate their enemies, and then they grab their victims' heads with their tentacles and pull them toward their lamprey-like mouths. Then they suck out the brains, or occasionally lay eggs, in their victims' craniums. From these eggs, larvae hatch, then slowly transform the humanoid into a new mind flayer. Each colony is built around a central chamber that houses a brine pool. In the brine pool is a large floating brain with tentacles called an elder brain. Elder brains hold all the memories and cultural history 
of the Mind Flayer Empire and act as telepathic hubs for any illithid or illithid creature within five miles of the Elder Brain. I think it was Dan that made me say it like that. Uh, probably. We can uh, all blame him. I normally do. The Elder Brain knows what every Mind Flayer experiences and thinks, and they direct the whole colony at once like a hive mind. There are also Ulitharids, which are rare super Mind Flayers that have the ability to break off from the main colony and create another colony farther away. Ulithrids aren't as beholden to the Elder Brain as regular Mind Flayers, but the main focus is to spread the influence of the Illithid Empire, found new colonies, and take over the multiverse. In time, Ulithrids will create their own briny pool and descend into it, only to rise as an Elder Brain ready to found its own colony. Illithid life is all about gaining knowledge, infiltrating nearby cities, feeding the colony and the Elder Brain, and psychically dominating other creatures for either farms or slave labor. But... For all of their abilities, one thing escapes them, and that's the ability to speak like other creatures. They don't have tongues or lips. They have like a circle with just rows and rows of teeth. So it's pretty difficult for them to speak. What they do instead is force a tentacle down their own throat and then bend it and have a double back out to act like a tongue. No, they don't. Yep. This is apparently really uncomfortable for them and is horrifying to behold. So they do this very rarely. Usually they reserve this for instances when they need to use a verbal component of a spell, address a crowd larger than their psionics would usually allow them to, or operate a magical item with a trigger word. As you can imagine, it makes any sort of vocalization hard to do, so verbal representations and names are hard for them to work around. When it comes to themselves, illithids rely on naming themselves psychically, but this often represents large ideas about who their self and being is that regular mortals may not be able to comprehend. The standard clicks and slippery noises that your psyche might recognize as their language when they're speaking telepathically to you just sounds like deafening static to regular humanoids when they're saying their own names. In some cases, they adopt other names that are simple for them to speak with their tentacled mouths, like Zelix, Quor, Cephalusk, and Thurasellery. Thurasellery. Jesus Christ. That's Thurasellery. Thar, no, it's, it's Surly. But one of them was syphilis, so <laughs> but all of these vocal limitations don't mean that they don't have language. They do speak undercommon, which is the native language of the Underdark, and they also speak deep speech, which is the language of aberrations. Additionally, though, they have a written language called Qualith, which is a tactile series of symbols like Braille is. And instead of using their eyes or fingers to read it, however, mind flayers drag their tentacles across the runes to understand it. Because it's not just the symbols, but the psychic imprints upon the symbols that let the illithids communicate complex warnings or instructions to others. Qualith is usually arranged in four-line stanzas and is incredibly difficult for a non-illithid to understand. Sometimes a significantly difficult enough intelligence check is enough to reveal a fraction of a message's meaning, but on a fail check, a humanoid will get a sudden pounding headache and may even be driven mad. The best way to understand these markings is by using the spell Comprehend Languages. Mind Flayer colonies almost never ally themselves with others, and even rogue Mind Flayers rarely have friends. In fact, most of the interactions that Mind Flayers have with any other species is either conflict, feeding, enslaving, or enthralling. Kind of like Dan on a Saturday night with his furniture. Conflict, feeding, enslaving, or enthralling? Is that... Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, okay. Enthralling another creature is an intense process that requires the participation of an entire colony. Once a subject is rendered docile by psychic attacks, an illithid spends 24 hours 
using psionic infiltration to erode the synapses of the victim and erase its personality and memories. During this time, the Thrall's intelligence score is halved. Then over the next 48 hours, the Mind Flayer builds new memories inside the empty mind, giving it the skills and expertise needed to accomplish the tasks that will be asked of it. When this is done, you get a 1d6 to the diminished intelligence score, and then you begin going about your new life without any memory of what you were before. During this process, any elithid that isn't a part of the ritual becomes dormant, donating psychic energy through the hub and into the ritual. So it takes an entire colony to do this. Occasionally, some advanced colonies will know how to keep some shreds of the Thrall's personalities intact during this psionic restructuring, and they'll use this functional Thrall as a spy, sending it back to its former life. The only way to reverse this is through the use of regeneration or greater restoration spells repeatedly for three days. Oh, so not just one of them will work. You need to, like, pump some effort into this. Yeah, absolutely. If one of your PCs goes down like this, it is a side quest to get them back. Man. There are a number of different kinds of preferred <laughs> thralls, but any humanoid is going to do. Animals and beasts require a lot of oversight, so they're used less often. But for the most part, illithid colonies like medium-sized humanoids for thralls and small-sized humanoids for food. Because the smaller races tend to gather in larger numbers and have more difficulty fighting back against larger controlling thralls. They also enjoy eating Kuatoa brains raw, which is to say unaffected by psionics. Sushi. Yeah, but Kuatoa make for poor slaves and thralls ever since the illithids crushed their sanity eons ago. Duragar are also considered a delicacy for illithids, but it's a little more personal considering that Duragar have revolted in the past and thrown off the shackles of the Mind Flayer Masters. As a result, enthralled hollow husks of once great Duragar are often paraded around and used as symbols to break the spirits of the other Duragar. I like that. That's that's na- just nasty. It is nasty. Yeah. It's pretty horrific, actually. These oh, look. A Mind Flayer is a CR seven. Yeah. This is a CR twenty. Like this is a level twenty campaign. I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Their minions are CR seven. In ancient times, Mind Flayers corrupted humans and turned them into the blind barbaric hulks that are Grimlocks. Grimlocks are idiotic worshippers of Mind Flayers and are easy to turn into thralls. But some are kept around for food because of the exotic taste of their brains because they're blind. Quagoths have innate psionic abilities that rarely manifest and they are excellent shock troopers in physical confrontation. So they're prime pickings for illithids. But their chaotic nature makes them difficult to control for long so they will eventually become food. But while all humanoids can be useful in one way or another, the ones that tend to simply be exterminated on site are the Gith. Mind flayers enslaved the Gith long ago, and now the Gith hold a special place in their hearts for hatred towards all illithid kind. The Gith Zerai have made their fortresses in the realm of pure chaos that is known as Limbo, and they largely avoid mind flayers when they can, although they will raid and destroy any colony that they become aware of. Gith Yankee, however reside now on the astral plane, and they've created an entire culture around invading the material plane and exterminating illithids. They're the biggest threat to the mind flayers that are left, and when the two civilizations meet each other, war is going to happen. Now, there are three other kinds of illithids beyond the mind flayers, elder brains, and ulithorids, and their thralls, but we'll get to each of them a little bit later in this episode. First, I gotta talk about the structure of the colony. In fifth editions, illithids have two kinds of layers, The first kind is our standard colony, which is one part prison, 
one part laboratory or laboratory for Terry. Thank you. And one part living quarters. Remember that Elithids live in the Underdark, so the colony is burrowed out tunnels and chambers that can't easily be accessed from outside. To begin with, let's look at the cleansing room, which is essentially where new captives are processed. Gear is removed and destroyed and or cataloged. Hair and fur are removed, and the sickly and infirm are executed. Next is the transformation center, which has a number of cells where subjects are under constant psionic attack. This is to hopefully twist and mutate their physical bodies, and most creatures here become crippled wretches. Occasionally, though, some creatures actually respond positively to the bombardment and emerge stronger than before. Any of the failed experiments then go to the prison, which is just a series of holding pens as they await entrance into the library. But the library isn't what you're picturing. It's actually a large collection of organs that have been extracted from bodies and kept alive for experimentation. In the center of the library is an area meant for dissection of the failed experiments, so organs can be harvested and studied. Now, when the creatures die here, their bodies are discarded as useless meat. Of course, brains have a special place in the laboratories, or laboratories for Terry, and they end up going to the brain chamber, which is where <coughs> exceptional brains are kept alive in special briny fluids and undergo psionic experiments. Elithids are always trying to understand the best way to attack and incapacitate their enemies. Brains that are deemed boring or dull are usually set aside for consumption, but special, interesting, or powerful brains go to the brain library, where they undergo deeper and more intrusive testing. I keep thinking about this library, Dave, and I keep brains and they're eating, giving foods libraries. Well, I keep thinking Futurama with all the heads in the jars. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. The subjects of experiments that came out of the transformation chamber, strong and malleable, are now thralls. These thralls gather in the common room, which is a large area that acts as their resting pen and feeding pit. Whenever a mind flayer needs a thrall, they come to the common room and take them away for a short while for work. This is also a staging area for the thralls to arm themselves and rush out if the colony comes under attack. There are guard rooms that act as entrances to the colonies where heavily armed thralls attack strangers on site and are quick to sound the alarm. Even finding one of these guard rooms is difficult as there are illusions, secret doors, and other obfuscations set up to hide the entrances to the colony. You're not going to sneak in. Looking at you, rogues. As for illithid living quarters, each mind flayer has a chamber or series of chambers that they use as a personal living space and laboratory or laboratory for Terry. Thank you. <laughs> every time. Every time, yeah. Every time it is. <laughs> um, when I was writing it out, I kept writing laboratory. No, there's an O there. That's for Terry. Even so, though you've done this, I want to point out that we we mushed together the Tory as tree. So it becomes laboratory. Laboratory. Yeah. All right. Do you do that for lavatory as well? Lavatory? Lavatory. Military. All right. Laboratory. Okay. Okay. What about poetry? Anyway. <laughs> Poetary. <laughs> um, whenever, uh, whatever the field of study is for these mind flayers, their chamber is full of experiments, subjects, useful thralls, and instruments. There's also no space given to recreation or downtime. If a mind flayer does want to rest, they can go to the central chamber that acts as the elder brain resting pool where the elder brain resides and often summons others for food and entertainment. But these colonies that have been dug into the Underdark are not the only kinds of lairs. There are also nautiloids, which are massive spaceships in the shape of a conch shell with a number of tentacles hanging off them. Now these nautiloids are incredibly rare and the knowledge of how to create one has been lost even to the mind flayers, so they are beyond precious. Many mind flayers try desperately to repair nautiloids, and broken or crashed ones often lie near or inside a colony. 
Are these alive as well, or are they just like made of metal and stuff? There's no indication one way or the other. I would say that this is going to be some sort of biotech. So something like Yuzhan Vong species 8472, that kind of thing? Exactly that. Okay. Depending on your flavor of nerd, yes. Depending on your preferred star. Yes. Yeah. If you like ship troopers, that would be another place to go as well. Fair, fair. Um, Terry's just like raising one eyebrow. Fucking, guys fucking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these nautiloids are special for a few reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that they can travel to and from worlds in the material plane. It's worth pointing out that not every nautiloid is set up to act as a lair or colony, but even smaller ships give technologies and other boons to elithids nearby. It's fair to say that a significant portion of a colony located near a nautiloid will focus on their experiments upon understanding and defending it, because losing one of these powerful spaceships would be another dreadful setback to the Illithid Empire. But, because Illithids see planar travel as something that is easily achievable, and the fact that Illithids have conquered the different planes in the past, they acknowledge divine powers, but they don't necessarily see them as gods. So all of this planar shit is kind of mundane to them. In fact, there's no religion or worship to speak of, even though it might seem like it to outsiders. There are two divine beings that the Mind Flayers hold in high regard, but not as gods, just as kind of more broader concepts. The first one is, I'm going to do my fucking best with this, Menzesoan? Menzes, help me out here, Dave. Maanzakoyan. Close enough. Who is more concept than physical being. This entity embodies total intellectual comprehension of fact and knowledge, where memories, thoughts, and talents are all merged into one understanding at the forefront of a creature's mind. This is actually similar to how Elder Brains and Aboliths operate in theory, which is why Mind Flayers are subservient to one and fascinated by the other. The other divine entity is Elsensine, who takes the concept of mental mastery to the next level, where one's mind psionically couples with the realm of universal knowledge. This means different things to different colonies, but it often leads to elder brains declaring war on gods of knowledge and trying to dominate and subjugate them. Cool. Which they sometimes do. Yeah, that's great. Regardless of the god, it's clear that Illithids acknowledge divine magic as being a normal state of the world, even if they don't believe in afterlives or souls. Still, though, only those seen as deviants will study it, as the general consensus is that psionic powers are superior. Arcane magic, however, is considered a dirty, twisted perversion of psionic power, and Mind Flayers have a special hate on for it. Now, sometimes Mind Flayers may go rogue and embrace it, using it to shield their minds from Elder Brains and break free. Most of these that do that and have been successful will start down the road towards Lichdom, but that puts you as public enemy number one for pretty much every other Illithid in existence. I guess the last really important thing to note is that adventurers who come upon Mind Flayers aren't really going to gain riches from defeating them. Not traditional riches, anyway. For the most part, Illithids trade in information, not precious items. Sure, destroying a colony is considered good with a capital G, but there's no diamonds or plus one armor or anything like that. In fact, one of the only reasons Illithids even keep treasure around is to lay traps for greedy creatures. Now, there are a handful of unique items, like mind blades, as well as physical augmentations, that creatures can receive from elithids, but these are almost all reserved for their thralls, so it's not recommended to go after them. However, if you become enthralled, and you trust your DM, you may come out the other side with some pretty badass abilities. 
how do you guys feel about kind of the Mind Flayer colony and and the way that Mind Flayers work behind the scenes when we get outside of the who are they and what do they want? Mm-hmm. We get into the nitty gritties. How do you feel about that? You know, the most interesting part for me there, that whole thing, is when you consider Mind Flayers probably one of the most advanced races, if not the most advanced race uh, within the D&D world. And so they know so much more about the universe than anybody else. And they have decided that they do not think there are, there are gods. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because it's like they truly know a lot more than us. They know so much more about the universe and they've gone, oh, no, they're not gods. There's something else. But they, we can't communicate with them. They're very difficult to communicate with. You don't see them very often. So we never find out what they think they are. I wonder how this would work in Theros because, I mean, Theros is all about the gods. Right. Well, what's interesting is that... In the D&D premise, I don't want to step on toes for anybody listening, but in the D&D premise, these quote-unquote gods are lowercase g because they are proven entities that don't require faith. They do rely on worship and they will create entire races and twist them to their will and have dominion over things. They will have domains that they see. I see, I oversee everything nature-based or life as opposed to death or whatever it is. So they claim these ideas and concepts, but they die. Yeah. And they hide in their own fortresses around the plains. And you can meet them, and people do. I mean, it's rare for the average human on the Forgotten Realms. But heroes will definitely, like your level, probably 16 party has probably met a god already, right? So these are proven enough that the temples are not places where we go to worship so they can hear us. But this is where they actually had a battle and beat that god. So we're going to put up a temple here. To, to acknowledge that. So are they gods or are they just supremely powerful beings? That's right. That, that, that appear as gods to the rest of us, right? I think yeah. that's super interesting. Yeah, I feel yeah, I like that. Yeah, that could be something really interesting to explore with the right party. Um, it also, I feel, gives... I had a friend who refused to play um, a paladin in... Uh, 3.5 because he was very Christian and thought that it was a conflict of interest because uh, he didn't want to have a god. He didn't. It has never worshipped a god in any D&D or whatnot. He's since relaxed his idea on it as he's understood that it's about these supreme beings. They're not gods. You're not actually worshipping another god, right? So there's no false idol involved here because they're clearly false idols yeah. in the first place. And so, um, and it is fiction. I think it gives people license to step outside their own religion and faith and say, yeah, okay, my guy's going to pray to Heronius or Paylor or, or whichever one and then have them go through. I'm going to spend an hour of my long rest in prayer and it's not going to affect themselves as soon as they get up and leave the table, right? <laughs> Where, I mean, I think that was an issue for a lot of people. You look at the satanic panic, right, way back in the, way, way back in the 1980s. It's and, crazy what we used to get so worked up about. I think. Yeah, you know, and now you got Cardi B's singing about her privates every other song that comes out and stuff, and nobody bats an eyelid. But it used to be like, "There's a devil in this game." My God, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, any thoughts before we jump into the the next monster stat blocks we want to break down? Any other thoughts about these guys? Any plot hooks that really jump out about Mind Flayer colonies in general? Uh, I think that, that this takes exploration to a whole new level. Because it makes me feel like even you may be level 14 or something, but it takes you back to that zero point, kind of piggybacking off of what I was saying about the gods thing of, oh, we actually know nothing. So me as Terry playing the game when we talked about the libraries there, I can imagine, imagine the like surgical steel sort of bed and the, and, you know, the heads in the jars and all that sort of thing. But the play, the player characters 
would have no concept of where they even are. They would never have seen anything like this. And so it's that whole idea of everything you thought you knew is no longer true. It's, yeah. like, it's like Men in Black with Tommy Lee Jones is like, everybody knew the world was flat. And like, I wonder what we'll think we know tomorrow, whatever he says. Yeah. It, it inspires me in that way. Yeah. That's well said. Yes, I agree. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. I can't talk these days. I'm so out of practice doing this bloody podcast. <laughs> You're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we have three different elicited adjacent monsters here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's two from Volos and one from the Monster Manual. So let's grab our dice and roll for initiative and see whether or not I'm going to continue talking everyone's ear off. Five. I got a 12. All right, Dave, you are up first. All right, uh, so I've got the Mind Witness, okay? Have you guys know anything about these? I know it by the picture only, and I don't know anything about this creature. All right, so this creature is just essentially a twisted beholder. It it is a twisted beholder. Uh, What they will do is they will grab beholders, take them to the brine pool, and they will be ceramorphed into a Mind Witness, okay? That's badass. I love this. They're big, they're red, their eyes are glazed over, or their eye is glazed over. Uh, and I guess the other ones on the eye stock are as well. These things are gross looking. They take a regular beholder and just kind of make it even worse. Uh, the other big change that happens to the beholders when they become mind witnesses is that four of their eye stalks change into these tentacles, which are similar to the, the Mind Flayer tentacles, okay? Okay. Uh, it also will change some of the eye ray effects as well. These guys are psionically devoted to the Elder Brain. They're almost as subservient as intellect devourers. They follow orders. They're pets. Yes. Uh, they do also act as a telepathic hub. So their primary function is to improve communication inside of a colony. Uh, a creature that's communicating uh, telepathically with a mind witness can communicate with up to seven other creatures that the mind witness can see. And this kind of allows for faster communication. All right. So these guys really do. I mean, they, they really are the hub of the colony. They're an extension lead. Exactly. Great. Yeah. If they are separated from their masters, they will seek out other masters they want to serve. When they do this, they look for other telepathic creatures to get their instructions. When they find these creatures, their alignment and their personality can change to reflect those of their new masters. And I mean, they'll occasionally ally with like flumps and demons and stuff like that. Or like Kalishtar even? Uh, yeah, it could. It, you know, the, anything that's telepathic, really. You know, your choice. Okay. Uh, to look at their stats real quick, uh, just to break it down, their armor is a 15. Their hit points are 10d10 plus 20. They don't have a uh, walking speed, but they got a hover of 20 feet. 10d10 plus 20. What CR are they? Uh, they are CR5, which I honestly think when I was going through this is a little off when you look at the eye rays and what those can do. Uh, these guys pack a bigger punch. I was going to say that's a little... They do, but I mean, their stats are relatively average. I mean, intelligence and wisdom are their two highest at a 15, and strength and charisma are their lowest at a 10 apiece. Uh, there's, they get intelligence and wisdom for saving throws, and their only skill is perception, To uh, that's a plus 8. They are immune to being prone, which of course yeah, they are. Yeah, they hover, sure. They have dark vision out to 120 feet, and their passive perception is 18. They do have uh, deep speech and undercommon, and their telepathy is out to 600 feet, which is quite far. Like, that's 
That's that's nutty. I don't think I've ever been on a map that was 600 feet big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? For actions, uh, they get a multi-attack, which is just one tentacle and one bite. The bite is a plus five to hit, and it does 4d6 plus two piercing. The tentacle attack is a melee weapon attack. It's a plus five to hit, and it does have five foot reach. Uh, it does 48 plus two psychic damage, and if the target is large or smaller, it is grappled with an escape DC of 13. Uh, it must succeed on a DC 13 intelligence save or be stunned until the grapple ends. Uh, other than that, it gets eye rays, and these eye rays are actually pretty crazy. It gets six of them, and I really liked how they balanced it because each one focuses on a different stat. One does con, one does strength, one does dex, and so on. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on its turn, it will get three eye rays that you roll at random. You re-roll duplicates, and it chooses one of three targets that are within 120 feet. So it's got quite a bit of range. Do they choose the target before or after it's determined which uh, which it, rate it's It's be? never clear about that with Beholders. It's always your roll randomly. I, myself, as a DM, will roll them and then choose my targets. It depends how forgiving I'm feeling. Yeah. Maybe I'll focus the Constitution-based one on not the Barbarian if right. I'm a little mad today. See, I think I would go the other way because I enjoy the chaos so much. The people experiencing the fear of not knowing, like I'll say, it's going to be you, and they're like, "Oh shit! Please don't be striked! Please don't be striked!" You know? Yeah, yeah. That that it depends on whether or not you're rolling it out in the open. Yeah, yeah. Oh, never, never roll in the open as a DM. Can't do it. I roll in the open a lot, but not always. I hold some back. The first ray they get is an aversion ray. Uh, the target has to make a DC 13 charisma save. On a failure, it has disadvantage on attack rolls for one minute. It can re-roll its save on its turn, the target, uh, and on a success, it just negates the effect. Now, they can only attack wizards in this because it's a virgin ray? No. No? <laughs> no. I love also it. clerics, I guess? I love it. Earlier on, I did a really surprised look when Dave mentioned eye rays as well, and I kind of went like this, and he just looked at me as always being completely normal and carried on. And I thought, <laughs> we're trying to get jokes into this podcast here, Dave. Will you be funny, you fuck? Will you be funny? <laughs> no, I'm a little eye ray. See, I was just talking about an I-raised joke a second ago that you ignored, and now you have the audacity to do your own immediately after my complaint. That's exactly. the problem. That's, that's who I am. So for the second I-ray... <laughs> it's an audio medium. The audience don't know what you're doing. I'm, I'm raising my eyes. Well, d- we'll tell uh, the Terry, people uh, at home. I'm, I'm stealing Terry's joke. Dave raises his eyebrows and stares at Terry. Closed captioning has been brought to you yeah. by... I'm using my fear ray... Yeah. Uh, which is the second one. The target has to make a DC 13 wisdom save. On a failure, it's frightened for a minute. They can re-roll it on their turn. Uh, on a success, it's negated. Uh, a lot of these are going to kind of sound the same with a little bit of difference. The Psychic Ray, the target makes a DC 13 intelligence save. On a failure, is it always a DC 13? Yes. Okay. So I will just tell you what it is. Sure, then. yeah. Uh, on a failure, the target takes 6d8 psychic, psychic damage. On a success, there's no effect. Uh, the fourth one is a slowing ray. The target makes a deck save. Guess what the DC is? Yeah, sure. Hold on. You, they take 6d8 damage. i got to go back to the psychic ray yeah, against six. an int save. Yes. So most of them are going to take that. Mm-hmm. Which I'm comfortable with. I mean, these things are, are CR5. I know you're comfortable with it. <laughs> yeah. It's just the, the evil DM. He just goes, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Fuck yeah. Em. They have health potions, maybe. Exactly. Yes. And if they don't, that's really their problem. But your fault, most likely, if the players don't have those Most pushes. definitely. <laughs> uh, the slowing ray is the dex save uh, the failure. Their speed is halved for a minute. They get no reaction on their turn, and they can only make an action or a bonus action on their turn. 
So like the slow spell. Yeah, I hate that spell. It's I hate oh, being yes. inflicted with it anyway. You know. Yeah. I like to wait to use that against people that are like action surging. Just yeah. a uh, just a. Fuck but when you that's up. all you've got, when yeah. you live, when you when your you job, saved it for this. When moment. your job is action surge, it's rough. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the target can re-roll on their turn, uh, and on a success, the effect is negated. Uh, the fifth ray it gets is a stunning ray. Uh, this one is the constitution save. Uh, if you fail, you're stunned for a minute. A success uh, negates it. Uh, you do not get to re-roll on your turn on this one, though. Oh, you're just stunned for a minute? That's, yep. Yeah, That's yeah. motherfuckerly. That's rough. Yeah, I, but I like it. There's, That's rough. This combat might take an hour. You spent all week waiting for this game. But <laughs> this, this, far, is, this is how you give a monk a taste of their own fucking medicine. Yeah, that's it. Well, I, I mean, this far, everything's been, oh, well, you get this hap- happening to you, but it's okay. You'll get it on your turn. It's fine. Oh, this is happening. Oh, no, no, it's okay. You know, you, you'll, you'll be able you, to... You'll make the save later. I don't know. That intelligence one for 68. Sure, the psychic race is pretty hurts. powerful. Yeah. It's pretty potent. Uh, the last one it gets, though, is the telekinetic ray. Now, this has I a fucking, couple of I different... I fucking love telekinesis in D&D. This, this is a little different based on what you're, you're doing it on. Uh, if the target is a creature, then it has to do the DC 13 strength save. On a failure, the mind witness can move the target up to 30 feet in any direction. I like the idea of vertically. Yeah, we're all on the same page. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> to the nearest cliff, my friends. Exactly. Uh, the target is also restrained until the mind witness's next turn or the mind witness becomes incapacitated. So this does have a one round limit on it. I also like the idea of with these guys, they pick you up and they just slam you back and forth in a hallway. And I would, I would sit there and be like, yeah. It, Ten foot hallway, bam, bam, bam. 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 Oh, yeah. of course, yeah. And, and 1d6 every time you hit, as if you're falling, right? Yeah, like, of course. Uh, now, if the target of the telekinetic ray is an object instead of a creature, it has to weigh less than 300 pounds or it can't be moved. But it doesn't have that limit for the creature. So if you've got, like, your big giant It could throw a Tarrasque? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't say you can't. Oh, it says shit. that the weight limit's only for the object. So, I mean, I like that. That's kind of mm-hmm. neat. Uh, the object also can't be worn or carried, and it can be moved 30 feet in any direction. Uh, and it can also use precision to move objects around, so it can do fine things. like It can turn a Open a door, a turn a key, right, okay. use a tool, that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, that's that's all there really is about the, the rays that these guys have. Okay, so let's uh, let's grab dice. I got some questions then. Yeah. Roll seven. Oh, I got a 19. I got a six. Okay, so you got a 19, Dave? Yes. Is there a specific kind of environmental or social encounter that sticks out to you with these guys? Social? No. I like the idea of these guys, uh, maybe two or three of them sneaking up behind a party and just going hog wild. Because, I mean, you got three of them, that's nine rays around. Sure, but everybody knows how to combat the shit out of it. Social or environmental? Is there anything that sticks out to you? I mean... I would give these guys some sort of hide and pick them up and probably pick my rays instead of rolling randomly for it and and just kind of like wreak havoc from the shadows, use the environment to their advantage. Yeah. Not necessarily have them be a confrontation, but more like a background set piece. Oh, am I standing in some sort of magic area? Like, but it's not. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of holes in the wall that they're blasting through, but you can't see them. Yeah. Yeah, Right. I think that would be kind of a neat way to to use these guys. That's cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Terry, any anything socially or or environmental? Oh well, the fact that they'll look for new masters is 
is great, right? I, so what what was the circumstances with that again? If the, it doesn't think it's separated from their old ones, right? If they get separated from their old masters, they do look for a new one. They want to serve. Yeah, but I love that, and I would lean right into it. I would lean, because uh, you have it show up as an NPC, just a voice in the dark, babbling in deep speech or undercommon until yeah. you can actually understand the language, and then all of a sudden talking it's, to the Kalishtar player. Yeah, it's like, hey, can you help? I'm look. I'm looking for someone to serve. I'm yeah. looking for someone to serve. Yeah. The colony has been wiped. I'm the last one here. Can, can I help you? And the, and they don't know what they're dealing with, right? Like, is that a is that a Mykonid? Is that like what colony are we talking about here? And a, one of these assholes shows up. Exactly. And then yeah, would you go real serious with that NPC, or would you do it as like the party sneaks up on them, but both sides are screaming like ah 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 ah, like the, <laughs> the mind witness is doing that as well. I guarantee then, the second that I say. There is a large ball hovering with one eye and a bunch of stalks coming off it with other eyes. My party's going to try to kill that immediately. Well, it's all about how you put it across. Though. Well, that's why you got to stun them and knock them down with psychic. <laughs> Slam them against the wall yeah. a couple of yeah. times. Yeah, but they're going to, if if that's suggested to the party that that's an option for them, or you lead them to believing it's their idea. Because <laughs> they think it's their idea oh, bless them <laughs> though um they, they're gonna take this and they're gonna and they will deal with this thing's bullshit for the longest time and you can keep escalate it escalate it and you put them in all kinds of trouble and they're gonna get attached to it and they won't let it go you're not wrong my favorite thing about this from an environmental standpoint you were talking about you know they're they are out in the uh like behind areas and they're attacking from shadows and and that kind of thing from an environmental standpoint these things can't be tracked yeah, you can't float. find one of these. It's the same thing about beholders, right? The idea, oh, we got to hunt down a beholder. Fucking how? Yeah. How are you doing that? And their telepathy is 600 feet. Yeah, they know you're coming, yeah. right? So, um, and, and their telepathy is 600 feet. You're going to hear in deep speech, fuck off. Yeah. And then suddenly nothing again, right? As I run away. These will come to you when they want to. You don't come to them, right? And they are intelligent, you said. They're, they're intelligence. Score is pretty high. Yeah, it's 15. That's yeah. higher than the average human. They they fucking know what's going on. These guys will strategize. So mm-hmm. I really like that. Uh, now do you have a battle tactic, Dave? You said three from behind. Uh, I the mean, name of your sex tape. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you got me. But it's three inches and it's Dan, so. Oof. Poor Dan. He's not on this episode to defend himself, so. He's I've, becoming a theme lately. I kind of like that. Yeah, we're only going to rip on him on the episodes that he doesn't edit. I mean, these guys are just the back row fighters when you have a room full of different uh, elithids and their minions. These guys sit back and control the battle. They're not front line. And that's probably how I would use them. I would use them to kind of maybe get around behind, maybe, and, and just wreak havoc with those rays. Uh, if you're rolling more than one mind witness uh, worth of rays per round, you're you're going to be hurting your party. Right, right. Hard. Oh, yeah, you're going to fuck them up. The yeah. action economy works in your favor. Yeah, even a CR5, a couple of these is going gonna, is gonna to be hard, even for a tier 3 party. Yeah, you could in theory, depending on your environment, if you could throw, if you can split the party with this, someone's going to die. Yeah, I would get, as, as far as battle tactics go, they're intelligent, so I would use the environment very well. And I would take it from the old kind of shoot 'em up games of where you shoot the barrel and it blows up, especially if there's like kinetic rays involved, where the party has to think much more about the, everything else around them and how it's affected. So I wouldn't go as simple as like, say, having an obvious cliff that they're going to push it off, but maybe more having multiple levels to the combat. Say if it was in like a tower or something. And if you go to the bottom, you got to get the fuck back up again. 
Uh, and then the other one's kind of going down. Maybe if they're using telekinetic rays, there's things that can be moved around and, and maybe explode or will affect the, like if it's oil, like they're going to slip on it and that kind of thing. So that every ray can affect what's around them and changes the environment. So there's so much more to think about. And then you kind of have a puzzle involved in the combat as well. And they're always my favorite combats. Yeah. I wanted to take that a step further. You kind of were going to just stepping on my toes a little bit on this one, but I pictured like a, a really tall like mining shaft, right? And um, the doors at the bottom, like the party walks in, suddenly the doors shut. This thing is way up, three hundred feet above. It can still sense you and talk to you and whatnot, and you've got to get past the. You have to convince it that you are worthy or you're not going to be a whatever. You can help it find its next thing. Otherwise, it's going to start throwing stalactites from the ceiling down at you. Yeah. And it doesn't need to roll to hit. You're making deck saves. And if I'm giving you a 15 by 15 foot room and these things keep coming, you're going to take damage on this. This mm -hmm. is, and when you are, you know, low enough, it will then descend upon you. Yeah. Yeah. You can almost force the role play instead of combat. Yeah. yeah. Well, the moment that you can think vertically, especially when it's not flapping wings, when you can hover, you have some options as a DM. Yeah. And I would. Add to that by giving a real random element to it with this with the stalactites. St stalactites is up. Stalagmites is, is the one. Okay, the stalactites. Um, it's safe. Let's just go with an obvious kind of square, and then the mine shaft sort of goes up, where each square is going to have a number, and so maybe you would roll to see how many are going to fall, and then you would also roll to see which squares they land on, or they're, sure, or they're yeah. targeting towards. So there's that random element of they they don't know where they should finish their turn because I'm all about movement. So then they've got to get creative with that. Or maybe there is parts that are covered. And so is it in their best interest to go after that attack or make that move? Or should they be defensive and, and try and get for that cover instead? That's when you get Lehman's tiny hut popping up. Yeah. Fair Not that I would call. think of that, but yeah. No, I will now though. <laughs> Dave, do you have a plot hook or a side quest or a, a campaign arc? Anything, maybe a one-shot around these guys? Uh, I like the idea that uh, these guys kind of maybe like wander into a small town looking for their new master. And your party has to go and figure out what happened to the old master. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not even an illithid thing. Maybe it's not a, a bad thing. Maybe their old master was a good guy, but they see this beholder-looking thing coming in with all these tentacle stalks. And they got to figure out the puzzle of how it got there. Right. I like this as an NPC from afar that for whatever reason may become fascinated with the party or whatever. And But they always know where the party is, but the party can never track them. So maybe there is often a lot of probably frustrating communication that just comes at them. And the party maybe just has to deal with this person they don't want to deal with. Much like... Q from Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. Like if Q just decides he wants to fucking show up, you have to deal with him for an hour long episode now and then we'll see him in two seasons or something. Yeah. I like this. As I like it. We'll show up at the worst time just because <laughs> he's decided that's when he wants to talk to the party. I'm going to flip that on, on his head for me. I want this guy to be the bartender. Yeah. <laughs> the sure. tentacles, the telekinesis and the ability to like shut your shit down. Yeah. Look, that guy's being drunk. Stun. I didn't take out the random of like idea of it and just have an NPC for this guy. Uh, and like the bar is going to be run by someone with psychic powers, maybe just a wizard or whatever, doing experimentation up top. But the bottom level is a bar for the party to come in and deal with this mind witness. And then when the wizard dies later, the quest is what do you do with this mind witness that won't leave them alone? Right. right. Just going to tag along because you guys have, I can sense you have the highest intelligence score. Out of everyone in town. So I'm tagging along with you guys. 
until you die or something else better comes along. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem kind of weird to me that they specifically talk about how some of the eye stalks change into these tentacles. Yeah. But that they don't do anything. I mean, you get an attack with them, I guess. But, I mean, that seems like a missed opportunity. I think it's just so that these things were lesser beholders. Yeah, they're so that they're not CR8s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think I was up next, so I'm going to jump into one of my favorites ever. The thing that has killed more player characters for me than any other monster, and that is the Intellect Devourer. Intellect Devourers are unique creatures that were created way back in OD&D. So they were in the Little Brown books. They go way, way, way back. No one is certain where the inspiration comes from, as there are no real-world versions of them, but they're pretty iconic. In fact, you've seen other intellectual properties latch onto the idea of psychic brain parasites since intellect devourers have been dreamt into existence, including head crabs from Half-Life come to mind. These are tiny aberrations that are literally scooped out brains that mind flayers have removed from victims, usually thralls, and then there's a horrifying ritual to give the brain psionic powers, the ability to sense nearby intelligent creatures, a hunger for that intelligence, and of course, Four legs that end in claws. Naturally. Just, yeah, just spread out the side of this fucking brain. These creatures feed on sentience until a creature is dead, at which point it turns the corpse into a puppet under its control. These are nasty, illithid pets and deadly hunters of the underground. They are considered lawful evil because they follow orders and commands of their creators. They have an AC of 12, but 64 plus 6 hit points, which is pretty hardy for a CR2 creature. Mm-hmm. You're going to see that at CR2 is devious. This thing will kill a level 20 character. Their strength sucks, their wisdom and charisma have zero modifiers, and everything else is a plus one or plus two. Even their increases to perception and stealth aren't really impressive, but that's where their mundanity ends. First of all, these little bastards don't have a face, so they're blind. It doesn't say that they don't need to breathe, but it's clear to anyone with half a brain. Get it? No, I don't. Explain it to me, please. It's it's clear that they don't have lungs or gills. So there's no breathing involved here. So for me, I'm going to take that into consideration and just have them rise from the depths of water and whatnot. Also, they don't have ears, but I don't give them the deafened condition because I assume their whole squishy, slimy bodies can sense vibrations. And this is backed up by the fact that they understand deep speech but can't speak it. So how do they communicate? And that's through uh, 60 feet of telepathy. Regardless, they're created magically, which technically makes them monstrosities, not aberrations, but fuck whatever, which means that they get blind sense out to 60 feet as well. They're effectively blind beyond that, but they can detect any intelligence score of three or higher in a 300 foot radius, regardless of barriers. That means that they will sense you, then start hunting you. And the only way to avoid this intelligence detection is with the mind blank spell which is an 8th level spell that only affects one creature at a time. So good luck, level 2 parties. Mm -hmm. Also, because they're magic, they have resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical weapons, which again, for a CR2 creature, with a decent amount of hit points, is pretty impressive. They've got a multi-attack, which allows them to use their claw attack once for 2d4 plus 2 slashing damage, and then their devour intellect action. And this is where it gets scary. I'm going to read from the book verbatim because they get it perfectly here. The Intellect Devourer targets one creature it can see within 10 feet if that creature has a brain. The target must succeed on a DC-12 intelligence saving throw against the magic or take 2d10 psychic damage. 
but also on a failure, you roll 3d6. And if the total equals or exceeds the target's intelligence score, the score is reduced to zero, and you are stunned until you regain a point of intelligence. Oof. That's the end of a long rest. Yeah, rough. That is rough. And wait for it, because that's step one. Step two is the ability Body Thief. I'm still reading directly here. The Intellect Devourer initiates an intelligence contest with an incapacitated humanoid within five feet of it that is not protected by the protection from evil and good spell. So, it's going to get into an intelligence contest, and you just dropped your victim to zero. If it wins the contest, the Intellect Devourer magically consumes the target's brain, teleports into the skull, and takes control of the body. While there, the Intellect Devourer has total cover against attacks and other effects originating outside the host. The Intellect Devourer retains its intelligence, wisdom, and charisma scores, as well as the understanding of deep speech, its telepathy, and its traits. But otherwise, it adopts the target statistics. It knows everything the creature knew, including spells and languages. If the host body dies, the Intellect Devourer must leave it. A protection from evil and good spell cast on the body drives the Intellect Devourer out. The Intellect Devourer is also forced out if the target regains its devoured brain by means of a wish. By spending five feet of its movement, the Intellect Devourer can voluntarily leave the body, teleporting to the nearest unoccupied space within five feet of it. The body then dies unless its brain is restored within one round. So you need to have mind blank, protection from evil and good, and or wish. In order to come up against one of these things. Or an intelligence score of 20. Yeah, if you got a 19 or 20, you can make it, right? Yeah. But that's it. I guess an 18, you'd be okay. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to beat that. Um, Well, they can roll 3d6, and they've got to be able to beat you. So an 18, 19, 20. Well, I always... Ty goes to the attacker, which to me is the intellect devourer. Oh, you're right. If the total equals or exceeds the target's intelligence score. There you go. So 19 or 20 only, which means... Outside of uh, racial bonuses, you can't even get that in Tier 1. Not until you get your first ASI. That's rough. So, these guys... And they're CR2, so... They they are CR2. I love to throw squads of these things at a party. Because they're squishy enough that by level 5 or 6, they're one-hit kills for the party. And with only an AC of 12, you you can squish them pretty easily. But holy shit, I have killed about, I want to say, 8... Player characters with intellect of ours, nothing ever comes close. Yeah, death yeah. tyrants, I got two with death tyrants. Terry, you're one of them. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I remember these guys coming at us in that evil campaign we did. Yeah. And they took over Nar. Nar. These things are great. This could really, like you're right, you can get them easily, but you better get them in that first round. Otherwise, it's going to escalate yeah. quickly. And uh, intelligence is the dump stat for a lot of people. Yeah. Right? They'll sit there, I'm okay with a 10. Yeah. You are there's not a, okay with the dead. There's a wizard in the party. I don't need to be 14 int, you know? Yeah. I, he can do the thinking. Yeah. Your wizards, your artificers, and the occasional rogue are going to be the ones that are okay. Yeah. And remember, they teleport into the head. So all of a sudden, there's this stun. And then, okay, we're going to roll off to see whose intelligence is highest. And then I'm just going to hand the book to that player, point to this paragraph... Let them read it and then take it back. Because that player is now playing an intellect devourer inside their own body. Because their character is dead. And they reti- they know the spells and they know everything. They yeah, know, they've right? got all of the traits and the yeah. physical stuff. But they yes. get the intelligence, wisdom, and charisma modifiers mm. of, of the 
intellect devour. Jeez, I just started a campaign with you, Adam, that you're DMing. Yeah. And my intelligence is like a nine. I take a negative one to it. I need, I need to change this what, now. What class are you playing? Barbarian? Barbarian, yeah. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Leon first... and Barbarians yeah. with the cat. Oh, that's cool. Rage monster. Uh, yeah, he actually had sleep cast upon him in the last game. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and he went down, and the sound he makes when he goes to sleep is... Sleeping lions. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, let's grab dice. I want to roll. Man. 11. 13. All right, I'm going fucking last. Okay, so Dave, any social encounters or environmental opportunities that really stick out to you with these guys? Uh, I mean, socially, I think that they're just going to show up and do what they do and, and take off again. They're not going to... They're pets. Yeah, they're, they're not going to have that social interaction. Uh, Environment-wise, I mean... I wish they had spider climb. Can I say that? That'd be so creepy. Especially yeah, with those claws they got, too. Like, yeah, it's the not artwork. a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like the idea of using these guys as a small army to like really make your party know that they probably shouldn't be going this way. Yeah, when you see a swarm of a hundred of these things coming down the hill, you run. You don't fight. Yeah, you guys, you no guys way go to, to the edge of the thing and you look into the cave and there's all of these small brains with claws sitting around and blah, blah, blah. No, it's time to leave, guys. Like, come on. But the moment you look down, like, they know you're there because you're within 300 feet. Uh, they just can't get to you right away because you're not within 60. Yeah. So they're trying to find you. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think about face huggers in Aliens. You can make this a right? chase. Skittering around. Yeah, oh, totally. Well, they've got 40-foot movement. Yeah. They'll but, fucking catch you. Your, yeah. your monk will live. Yeah. Terry, do you have any, any environmental things that, like, stand out to you for, uh, for Intellect of Hours? Oh, well... Okay, I have a big idea for them, but I'm going to save it for the, the plot sure. ideas. Yeah. This is, um, environmental-wise, okay, I'm not going to say environmental, I'm going to say social, and lean into, well, see, I can't get Krang out of my head. That's all I'm thinking. I just got Krang. <laughs> but, I, but I really, I, I like the idea of just, <laughs> maybe not going so obvious as that, but maybe there's an NPC or a key personality, and it's just not known. That this this has already happened to them, you know. Maybe you've known them previously, and that something has changed. But perhaps you assume it's for another reason, like their family burned, or choose your D and D backstory, whatever you know. Sure. And yeah. so you, you assume it's because of that. So you get led down the path here, but it's not. It may be because of this the whole time. So for for but that would all start with a social situation where all of a sudden the person is behaving differently, they're speaking differently, okay, and yeah. then from there you can kind of. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a big way. reveal later on. Yeah, so I would kind of do the social situation. I'm getting at really the idea is that it's it's not known that this creature is even involved. I really yeah, for from the social standpoint, yeah, I really like the idea of dangling changelings and doppelgangers in front of the party right. for a session or two, and then having an NPC start acting weirdly, and they're sitting there trying to like. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna cut the arm and see if the blood is this, or we're gonna check him out on a full moon. Maybe he's a lycanthrope. They're never gonna imagine in a million years there's a brain with legs sitting inside that 100%. cranium. Yeah, right. That's that's a lot of fun. Love it. Um, these guys do have a bonus to stealth, so I and they're in the underdark. I feel like they like and prefer the dark, and I would say that they can probably sense it somehow. But they're fine in the light. I bet you could hide one in plain sight if if you walk into a magic shop. And the owner's not there, and nobody knows where they're gone, and whatever, whatever. They start to explore, and you say, there's this, there's that, and oh, there's a jar with a brain sign in. They're going to be like, oh, what weird. And well, then you, they don't need to breathe. But they, and they'll just move on. They'll just move on and go and start looking at all of the other stuff like that. And so you could really introduce this thing early, and those fucking idiots won't even know. <laughs> Dave, do you have any battle tactics? Uh, I mean, numbers. Strength in numbers. Strength in numbers. That's yeah. it. Just, that, that, that's really what these guys are. 
if you have enough of them, you will be successful in getting their abilities to take. This, Mimics, and Rust Monsters are the three ways that I panic experienced players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if it's Dan Sturges. Yeah, that's also true. Terry, any battle tactics? First, we attack their heart, right? Number one, so go for the NPCs. Go for the NPCs. Whichever one is the youngest, or the most frail, or the weakest. <laughs> Honestly, they can sense intelligence. They know who the dumb one in the party is. They're aiming for the barbarian. Yeah, or the child NPC. Yes. Because, ch- not saying the children are stupid, children can be very intelligent for their age, but ultimately are stupid in comparison to adults. I and agree. children are stupid. Yes, they and are. in comparison to intellect devourers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, again, I'm going to give them spider climb. I just am. Yeah, you, they you need do to, that. They need to come yeah. down the wall, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's for, you know, that's for the, the, the atmospherics more than anything, right? Yeah, I probably won't rely on that in combat. Yeah. Well, it doesn't give them the tactical advantage. But it means the players will kind of let you get away with it. If you're like, it was just for the image, like, you know. You yeah. Know. And even if it crawls up the wall, Ranger, I don't know, shoot. You know? Yeah, well, and the other thing, too, is I like the idea of the chase that Dave was talking about, where you're running through the tunnel, and these things are skittering along the ceiling and the walls, and it's just like every surface is covered in these things coming at you. And you could do it like when the when the human fighter lights the torch, like cockroaches, and then they go Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, all right, I'm, I'm totally into it. Plot hook, Dave. Side quest, one shot. Okay, so yeah. s- stay with me here. Intelligence battle, Okay. If that were to happen, what I would do is I would put pause on the whole thing. I, w- I would probably make this slowly affect each one of the characters so it happens to all of them, okay? All at the same time. And then we're playing Jeopardy, okay? They are going to have an intelligence off. They are going to sit there in this, like, extra-dimensional realm that just is not real, but they're there, and there's going to be this brain with a mustache sitting behind a podium and all of these questions. And I'm going to quiz This them. is Jeopardy. Yeah, you are literally in Jeopardy and right now. And like the representation for the... Uh, for the intelligence for, for battle. The, for the intelligence battle. Exactly. And then just make that. them actually like have this mini game inside of the session. If, if you don't want to go through Jeopardy, you could do a Trivial Pursuit as well. Sure, you could do any sort of quiz show with that. But I mean, You could get audience... Laughter tracks, all the like. We will provide one. All right, guys, ready? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on. Whoa! The voiceover dude that nobody ever sees. The guy that like introduced the host and whatever. Johnny Gilbert. Yeah. Yeah. Let's tell him what he could have won, Ted. (laughs) Let's tell him what he could have won, syphilis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, Terry, you're big, awesome. Oh, this is a huge, um, I can't use words. This is a huge, uh, what the fuck am I trying to say? You have failed your intelligence. Opportunity for a massive campaign pivot that nobody's ever going to see coming. You start off playing Horde of the Dragon Queen or whatever you want. Everybody thinks you're doing a module because you've left the book lying around for weeks. You've done your session zero. Everybody's going for it. And then all of a sudden, the first adult dragon or whatever that you come across is not acting anything like an adult green dragon. Is not doing... Nothing's lining up. Nothing's making sense anymore. You get through that battle, figure out who is this, and then JK, we're pivoting over here, and now it's all about mind flares and and other worldly stuff from there. I love that. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm going to actually keep throwing these things at the party, like one every four or five sessions. Uh, and every once in a while, whenever they get one, it's going to just teleport away. But that means that it won. It is in someone's head. And I'm going to, invasion of the body snatchers, slowly start to replace my players. 
and then let them know that they're in on it till there's just one player left. All the other players are going to be in on it. We'll come up with like a side chat in like Messenger or Discord or something to be like, okay, so everyone just be like, hey, let's go into that cave. Come on, it's a good idea to come into the cave. Come down into the cave, right? And then you see them like someone picks up an intellect devourer in the middle of the night and puts them down and and, and sends them off scurrying into the yeah. darkness, right? And it, they're just acting really freaking weird. The wizard isn't casting spells anymore because his intelligence modifier dropped to an intellect devourer. And so it's just everybody's acting a little bit too nice. Okay, everybody smile this entire session and don't blink. Freak out that one player until they realize that everyone else in the party, this has been a total party kill, except for you. Yeah. And you are the last person standing and everyone is here smiling at you. And your party of five, four of them now, are brandishing weapons and magic items and looking at you like, hey, come meet our friend. I think that is the creepiest, yeah, coolest that's way super to creepy. like fuck around. And I mean, everybody's got the next character lined up to come in and hunt down the the intellect devourers and the mind flayers and all that. Yeah, so. yeah. But I think that's just so fucking memorable. I love it. And you know what? You could do it where that would be the ultimate goal. Say if you're kind of getting towards the later tiers or a few weeks of sessions, but you could start off. Or you could do it the opposite way. Let me go the opposite way. Where you're open with the players and you tell them, if this happens to you, I will speak to you separately and you can't tell anybody else that this happened to you, blah, blah. So now everybody knows this is a possibility. Everyone's paranoid as fuck. But then just never do it to any of them. <laughs> just never do it to any of them. Just let these fuckers go through it. They won't trust each other. And I'm the evil dude. Yeah. But then still give them the opportunity like you do every round of Werewolf. You know, let, give them the opportunity to decide if there's going to be anybody that they think it is or kill them or whatever. Or yeah. However you want to do it. But ultimately just let them lean into their own paranoia. And then when they get super mad at the end and they blame it all on you, you can say, well, did I tell any of you that this had happened? No. So now it's their fault. Brilliant. This would work wonders on Dan and Brad. Yeah. Can you imagine them at the table? James would narrow his eyes and just be like, I trust none of you motherfuckers. Fireball. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on a little bit of a more serious note, uh, there's someone that frequently interacts with us on the uh, It's a Mimic subreddit. Uh, and they have launched their own podcast, and it's actually a YouTube channel. Uh, they've launched their first episode, and the podcast is called Gaining Advantage, okay? And this is all about uh, working in disability into Dungeons & Dragons. This deals with physical disabilities, mental illnesses, uh, and other things. In fact, he, he posted a little uh, blurb here, and I'm just going to read it to you, Okay. I just launched a new podcast on YouTube. It's about using D&D to make others' lives better with a specific focus on, but not limited to, mental health, neurodiversity, and disability. And he's posted the first episode. It's about an hour long. You guys should check it out. I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. Uh, I just saw it here the other day. But I listened to the first 10 minutes and he makes some good points. They're going to do things like uh, when he's up and going, he's trying to get a book out. He's been writing it for quite a long time. Uh, it's supposed to be out this fall. And once they actually start getting going, they're going to be doing things like releasing the disabled NPC of the week that you can grab and put into your campaign. Uh, they have the idea of a combat wheelchair, okay, that you can use. That's pretty badass. That yeah. is, right? Uh, they're also going to do accessible adventure of the week as well. So it's going to have uh, all of these different ideas brought into it. Uh, the idea is that he's going to be able to use symptoms. He says he's got almost 300 that he's worked in. And this will allow you to kind of flesh out your characters a little bit better. Let's be honest, guys. This is a, a world full of demons and devils and dragons and other creatures that start with the letter D. And uh, 
chances are there's going to be people that have physical, if not mental disabilities, people with real trauma mm -hmm. uh, in this world, and it's just never addressed. And he's trying to put out a book uh, that addresses this and brings it into the world and allows people to maybe use it to open up their awareness uh, or maybe it's just cathartic for some. It allows them to, you know, use their disability that they may have in uh, in a game. Yeah. Right? The thing that I like about it is it's not done for shits and giggles. Mm -hmm. Right. It's actually a respectful look at people with disabilities and people that are differently abled can find representation. Yeah. If they want it or they can just, you know, focus on the, the hero like the rest of us do. None of us have a, a plus five modifier to intelligence but yeah. by god we'll play it what, what <laughs> i like about the way that it sounds this has been put together is this is not just trying to cram things in to try and make it work and okay there's your representation this sounds like a whole new avenue of exploration where you're actually looking at the game in a different way because you're looking at it from a, a perspective of a person who is not going to experience the world the way you do so now things all of a sudden get much more interesting. You know, if you, like if I use like a blind person as an example, for example, then you're, say if you're using like magical darkness as, as the representation for that or whatever, where everybody else may be in a serious disadvantaged position, but this person is not. And so I'm just going off the top of my head here, but there's plenty of ways where you can really explore how to make the game so much more interesting because of these things. Because you're viewing it from a perspective that you're not used to. Yeah, you, that's that's a yeah. good point. Uh, the book is going to be called Disabilities and Depths. Uh, and he's been working with uh, people who have mental illness and disabilities to create art for the book as well. Like, this is not just him doing it by himself. It's a collaboration with other people as well. Right. He's also talked about the symptoms list. It's not just what you might see in every in our everyday world. There's magic in D&D. There are magical disabilities that come with it as well and he's apparently worked some of that into ah, it as well yeah. so like it seems this is this is a passion project and it's a labor of love you can tell mm -hmm. yeah he's been talking about this on the on the subreddit a few times now and i mean this is a regular that we have some some back and forth with and it's like i said it's certainly worth checking out okay well i'd like to remind everybody that you can find us across a variety of platforms if you if you're into instagram you can find us on instagram Facebook, r slash it's a mimic on Reddit that Dave just mentioned. I'm not big on Reddit, but I know a lot of people are. So whatever your avenue is, go for it. You can email us if you have mailbag questions or suggestions or things you'd like to see included or whatever reason you feel the need to email us. Uh, info at it's a mimic dot com. Well, hold on. It's, it's, maybe not every reason. It's mostly positive. I think we're going to say porn. It's mostly porn. <laughs> Anyways. Speaking of porn, Terry, you've got some sort of crazy tentacle monster you want to... Yes, I do. The Neotholid. And and I always say I get super excited by the ones I get. Maybe it's just a passion for the game, or maybe uh, maybe Adam does select certain certain monsters for me. Uh, but yeah, the Neotholid. So the Neotholid is a gargantuan aberration that is chaotically evil and starts its life out as one of the little tadpoles that's in the, the pool where the elder brain is, and then the tadpoles kind of grow up and they get implanted in brains and we go from there. But in such a situation where the mind flayers are, are no longer around, perhaps their colony was destroyed or whatever, and these tadpoles are left to themselves, they will actually start to compete and devour each other until ultimately only one remains, which is the one that's destined to continue growing, increasing in size to become the Neotholid. The Neotholid 
Um, and, for, and I'll go into the stats in a second, but the one I want to point out is of such a low intelligence that it cannot be detected by the mind players. So once this thing reaches its gargantuan size and is off in the world, they no longer know where it is. Because it doesn't comprehend its association with mind flayers, mind flayers are equally are as equal their enemy as any other creature is. And so it will actively hunt them as much as it will hunt anything else, which is all the time because they are constantly hungry. So, often confused uh, for a purple worm, uh, of course they would be. They are different in some regards, but we'll take a look at the stats here. Natural armor gives them an armor class of 16. Hit points 21d20 plus 105. 21d20. Plus 105, yeah, that'll average out at 325 here. Speed of 30 feet. What I want to point out, because these creatures navigate their way through, through tunnels and caving systems and, and underground, they do not have a bury speed, unlike the purple worm. So they're, what I take from this is they're not burying their way through the ground and creating their own tunnels, but they're moving through existing systems. Yeah, right? yeah, I see that. Yeah. Um, so their strength is by far their, their, their best stat. They are as strong as an ancient dragon would be. They are very strong. But they are as dexterous as a wooden stool. <laughs> which is not very much at all. Great constitution, of course, because they're massive creatures. Intelligence is three. It's a minus four modifier. Um, and so they cannot be detected by mind flayers. Their wisdom is well above average. They have a great understanding of the world around them. Uh, and, and naturally, their abilities, you know, what what they would do for hunting. And, uh, and their charisma is slightly above average as well. Saving throws, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. Senses, blind sight for up to 120 feet. Passive perception of 13. It speaks nor understands zero languages. There are no languages associated with this creature. And a challenge rating of 13. It understands hunger and only hunger. It understands hunger and only hunger. That's it, yeah. It cannot even uh, comprehend its own abilities, which we're going to write after this here. Um, so, uh, so it has creature sense. So let me just read this verbatim here because I always get this one wrong. So the Neotholid is aware of the presence of creatures within one mile that have an intelligence score of four or higher. That's the same creature sense that the other mind flayers have. So it, it, it has that same ability. That means, though, that it cannot detect other Neotholids if one was around. Though typically there, there aren't multiple of them uh, because the whole point is that they, they compete and, and devour each other until one remains. So a creature uh, protected by a mind blank spell or a non-detection spell or similar magic can't be perceived in this manner. They have innate spell casting in the form of psionics as well. Their spell save DC is going to be 16 and the ability um, is wisdom. So at will... At will, they can cast Levitate, which I think... That's pretty standard for anything Mind Flayer. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah, I suppose yeah. it is, yeah. I know, we've gone through these, I guess. But it's it's super interesting, I think, for this creature and how, uh, how it might engage in combat, especially because this creature cannot comprehend its own psionic abilities. So what I took from that is maybe there wouldn't be strategy from these abilities. It might just be blasting shit off that it doesn't really fully understand, doesn't know where it came from. This like, is how I do. This is the world. This is what I am. Yeah, this is it. This is what I have. I'm going to fire something at you. Uh, but once per day can cast Confusion, Feeble Mind, and Telekinesis. I'm, I'm fascinated with these creatures and the, and the combat scenarios that can come from it. Um, magic Resistance, the Neotholid has advantage on saving throws against spells and other magic effects. What I like about that is it makes for a very high CR creature that is um, is much more interesting for the martial classes. 
to, to you know when things get too powerful and uh, and everybody's leaning into magic at this point and the martial classes kind of feel like they're being left behind a bit because you know if you're champion fighter at level 18 and you're just still just swinging to hit um, it makes it a little bit more interesting for the martial classes and uh, and the combat starts to revolve around them a little bit more but for their actions they have two actions the tentacles tentacle attack plus 13 to hit reach of 15 feet and then 3d8 plus 8 bludgeoning damage plus 3d8 psychic damage. If the target is a large or smaller creature, it must succeed on a DC 18 strength saving throw or be swallowed by the Neotholid. A swallowed creature is blinded and restrained. It has total cover against attacks and other effects outside the Neotholid, and it takes 10d6 acid damage at the start of each of the Neotholid's turn. I know. If the Neotholid takes 30 damage or more on a single... Um, on a single turn from a creature inside it, it must succeed on a DC 18 constitution saving throw at the end of that turn or it regurgitates the swallowed creature which falls prone in a space within 10 feet of the Neotholid. And if the Neotholid dies, a swallowed creature is no longer restrained by it and can escape from the corpse using 20 feet of movement as it just kind of crawls out of its face essentially. Gross. I Hold, on. It. Hold on. I gotta say, 15 feet with the tentacles to attack. 15 foot range. Yep. Yeah. It does six, what was it, 68 plus eight? 3d8 plus eight. Plus another 3d8. Plus 3d8 right? plus eight. So, yeah, so that's 68 right. plus eight. Then you're taking acid damage, then it pukes you up, still within range of the tentacles. Yep. So next round, we're doing it again. And it doesn't say how the space is determined. It just says within a space within 10 feet. Is that the DM's discretion? Do we let the player decide where they come out? We're going to randomize that. I always put it within 10 feet of the mouth. Right. Hard stop. But I mean, how do you decide where? Because the environment, like, do you put it on top of a stalagmite? <laughs> you know, because that's that. You know, the, the environment creates combats, right? So, it, does it go out over the cliff? Does it go out wherever? I'm really, I'm really clear with my battle maps about which way that thing is facing. Right. Right. So, and I'm also not going to totally screw over my party. Oh, but you put it straight out from the straight map. out from the map. Okay. Yeah, really I don't puke out of my ears. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Should I see a doctor? Yes. Oh. Yes, you should. Fuck. Acid breath, Dave. No, I'm not calling you acid breath, Dave. <laughs> All right, that's breath. the new name, right? Acid yeah. breath, comma, Dave. Uh, Recharges on, on a five or six. Uh, this is a 60-foot cone, and each c creature in that area uh, is subject to a DC 18 dexterity saving throw, taking 10 D6 acid damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one. So, this thing's a fucking beast. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I love it. I love it. Because if you put a good environment here, like you could have cave systems, of course, but if you can maybe have a larger open room, I'm thinking lots of stalagmites or other obstacles or other hazards, you know, where that regurgitation mechanic is going gonna, is gonna to play a factor. The fact that creatures are swallowed means that the party's going to get split up. There's a lot of different ways you can play with this. My favorite way of doing this would be, okay, now I'm going to save it. Let's sure. roll. Yeah. Um, Let's that's roll. That's why I stopped talking. I was like, you're giving away all your stuff here, Terry. Se 17. I had a 14, but Terry knocked me to a 6. Okay, so uh, social or environmental thing first. This thing, right, here's, so here's my environmental thing, because there's very little fucking social bits, right? I picture this thing in a giant chasm, but there's a narrow opening, like a small tunnel that comes to it. Right. And it just latches its fucking lamprey mouth around it and brings the tentacles back into its body. So you're walking down the tunnel and suddenly you go squished. You go... You know, thump, 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 squish, squish, squish. What? And you're already five feet inside this thing's mouth. Oh, yes. 
And then the tentacles burst forth to grab everybody who's at 20 feet, you know, to get away. Right? I, I think you are inside it before you realize that you are inside of it. That is the environmental, like, trap that this thing lays. And it's got creature sense, so it knows you're coming. It's yeah, going to, like, 100%. saddle up and, and get going there. Uh, this... The social encounter, I, I like to use social encounters, and there isn't much conversation going to be had here, but I like to, I think of manipulating creatures as a social encounter, as opposed to like a, a if you were in combat that, and you're trying to make it move to a certain place, that's a combat tactic, but I'm talking like long-term manipulation. Can you get it to chase you to your enemy, you know, uh, and use this creature uh, to your advantage? And I think this is a creature where they have an understanding of the world around them in that they know how to hunt their prey very well, but they're not going to figure out with a very low intelligence that you are trying to trick them. You know, they're just going to continue trying to get at you. And if you can lead them in a certain direction, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you could use this creature to your advantage if you're stuck in a mind flutter situation. You just dangle Kevin Bacon at him? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great Where's idea. Where's he been? Is he all right? I haven't heard much. I think he's doing network television. Okay. Kevin Bacon's okay. We hear about it if he was frying. Okay. I mean, I, I'm going to piggyback on what you said, Adam. Uh, as soon as you started talking about these things, I was thinking Empire Strikes Back. Uh, in fact, the poster for Empire Strikes Back is on the wall behind you. Yeah, I know. I thought of that too with the <clears throat> asteroid. Yeah, exactly. But I, I know that. I mean, and I will use this because I'm doing Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Uh, a couple of spoilers here. When you get to Skullport, there's the big purple worm that's in the back. It's dead, but uh, you know it's still hanging around there. And you can go inside it, and there's actually, I think it's a like a a restaurant inside that you can go and eat inside really? the purple worm. What yeah. does that smell like? Um, probably nothing great, but it is, it is Skullport. But it's not supposed to. Is it just, like, it's not like It's a taxidermy corpse? Or no, it? no, it's just like a giant corpse that has been there for as long as the city has been. Yeah, no, you, you can't can, eat in that. You can. I mean, I, I'm assuming the flesh is gone by now. It's okay. more... Carapace than anything else? Yeah, right. So, uh, I know that there is a level further on down where there are, uh, elithids, dwelling down there and there's always the path down to the next level so i would make this you know you come out and then all of a sudden in front of you there are all these teeth and there's these tentacles that stretch going away from you and it turns out that they're actually coming out through the mouth of this thing coming out through the mouth yeah out through the mouth into the illithid layer and just like set the tone right from the get-go. did they walk in through the anus yes well then i mean why not that's a hell of a social encounter did you buy dinner first mm -hmm. <laughs> no because I mean normally that kind of thing is saved till like the third mm, day well I also think you should until never, you pull out the purple worm you should never assume Adam okay just that you just because you bought the purple worm dinner doesn't mean you get the purple worm this is I guess I should it's not even a purple worm but we're this is negotiated <laughs> online before we ever meet face to face everybody brings their IDs yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, not after last time alright battle tactics uh, as oh, who's going first? Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm going first. Yeah. Uh, battle tactics for me, this is tentacle, 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 tentacle. Right. Is it? And we're not bursting up out of the ground. This is not a purple worm, right? This is something that slithers through gigantic tunnels, right? Its burrow speed is going to be if it's not listed, it's like five foot, like five feet around, right? Yeah. And I know this thing is gargantuan, but there's no idea of really how big it is. It can be as big or as small as you want it to be. 
So I love the idea of this thing bursting out. Can you imagine walking through this giant cavern where there's all of these tunnels all 360 degrees around mm-hmm. the walls and ceilings and, and the floor? And you're like avoiding it and there's foul air coming out of some of them and whatnot. And then all of a sudden this thing just like bursts from one into another one and just you watch the body go like just rushing by you for a full minute and then it disappears again. Yeah. Right, and you're like, well, what the fuck? Which one of these holes is next? This is where I don't like the uh, the the square system that we have for the sizes, because you yeah. want to play this like a game of snake, don't you? You yeah. want like the long kind of blocks, and then maybe mm-hmm. you can hit it as it's going by, mm-hmm. and then ultimately it'll be gone. And I wonder if I would maybe adjust it that way. But I, I've like, abandoned that square system for yeah. anything bigger than a medium sized creature. Right, right. If if it's if it's a two by two square is large. But so is a one by two square for a horse. I've already abandoned this fucking thing. So. Exactly, yeah. Oh, Terry, you're next. Oh, it's me. Uh, battle tactics for this guy. I'm taking somebody out right away as in I'm swallowing them. I'm taking that. I'm reducing that action economy right away. These things are of low intelligence, but they, they will understand from a hunting that they have a better success if they can get something quickly. And I don't know if I would maybe try and escape with that thing right away, but I would certainly use it as a tactic to split the party up and separate them, get them into different tunnels, um, use blast these spells off as well, like confusion. If you can hit somebody with confusion, that's freaking brilliant because you've taken them out of the battle for at least one round, and if you're swallowing somebody else, you've cut them down by half right away. It just occurred to me, they don't have a burrow speed because they have acid spit. They're burning through rock. Okay, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, that, so that's my answer it. for that, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. So, for a battle tactic for me, it's a very simple one, but but use it DMs to your advantage. Swallow somebody as quick as you can is going to be. See, when I say these things, Adam, they come out for, first. You swallow and then you spit, and right? then you spit and then regurgitate, as we call it in my house. <laughs> and you move them. Move I, those- I, I've never been to your house, and I don't think I want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even if because this is just movement around. I like manipulated movement. I've said it a few times. But if you can put the players where you want them to be, then they spend every single turn reacting to your bullshit. Which is always my big overarching lesson: is make them spend their turn reacting to your shit, and do that by swallowing them and moving them around the, the map. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I I would also play with the the spells that it has. I like the idea of it already levitating when when the players get there, and then it uses telekinesis to lift someone up, and then it just like glides over them. That would be like fucking swallowing terrifying. them whole. Right. I, I was thinking about levitate too, but I was thinking about a vertical mine shaft. Yeah. The, the thing is coiled at the bottom, just starts lifting vertically up like it's a spaceship taking off, it's like some sort of worm elevator. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I like the idea of just kind of using the, the fancier things that it has. Yeah. You know, to, to your advantage. Make it not just a regular worm encounter. Mm-hmm. Make it something better. Use the, use the extra stuff that it has. Yeah, that kind of, uh, like Adam touched on it earlier about like a mine shaft. Uh, and that would make sense for your idea as well. Kind of play it more of a up and down, you know, kind of like Ender's Game. Oh, they're the coming down in a end, basket you know? and it's yeah. levitating up. Because he didn't have to worry about gravity, but the party does. So, yeah, great. Yep. Okay, so for the plot hooks, I mean, the obvious one here is you got to kill this thing, hunt it down and kill it, right? Um, but I want you to be tasked by Illithids to do it. That's mine, so fuck you. I'll quickly think of another one, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that would be a lot, of, a lot of fun to have a Mind Flayer show up and just, like, ram a tentacle down its throat and then back out again so it has a tongue. And it's like, we need your help. 
It's a thirst. So, I, I don't know. I think that that would be a lot of fun to team up with a Mind Flayer, mm. especially at low level. Like, if you can get some sort of weapon that's meant for killing these things, yeah. the Mind Flayer teams up with you. So you can see how badass the scary Mind Flayers are before you got to fight them. Right. And I w- I'll use my turn just piggybacking off what you said, Adam, because I had the same idea. Because when we covered um, uh, Mind Flayers last time, we said one of the biggest problems that uh, the players have is just trying to get within the community of mind flayers. Because if you see one, you're dead. They're sucking yeah. your brains out. You're never finding. You're anything. already fucked. But it's such an interesting community and race that you need an excuse for them to accept you because temp- they know you're there to accept you temporarily, even if it's to their benefit. And hunting down their enemy like this is the perfect way to explore that society without just being instantly dead. If you go in as a level 12, or what's the CR in this thing? 13. 15? If you go in as a level 13 party into a Mind Flayer colony and you see the shit they're up to, you can't contend with that. You will die. Yeah. You need to be a far higher level. However, your mercenaries that they have hired on or you know they're going to allow you passage through their area or whatnot if you kill this thing. And then you got to come back nine, well, I guess six um, levels later, right, to now deal with this colony again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would probably flip it the other way around. You know, you have to somehow make this thing work for you. You touched on it earlier, Terry, uh, where this thing is what's going to take out this really powerful Mind Flayer colony. Mm -hmm. This is how your tier two party might be able to trick this into taking out that colony. Because, I mean, they're not going to be able to do it on their own. Their NPCs are not going to be able to help them, right? This, though, getting this could make it nice, come nicely full circle. Oh, uh, I just... Okay, so you know the Underdark is a certain you know distance from the surface, right? There's nothing that says this thing has to stay in the fucking Underdark. No. Because there's always civilizations that are right on the cusp of the surface world and the Underdark. Either just inside the Underdark or guarding the outside. And this thing can sense creatures... So can you imagine this thing bursting out of the ground and levitating its way through the fucking forest? Right. Four feet off the ground, weaving in between trees. Mm-hmm. They're just down the road, knocking out you know, horses and carriages along the way, going to the next town. Yeah, this thing is just... Following a, the trail. The, the the floating scourge, right? Like, yeah. That's fucking terrifying. And I love the fact that they have creature sense, so they can sense the mind flares, but the mind flares cannot sense it. Yeah. Which I think is great. Do we have any final thoughts before we wrap up this uh, this episode, guys, on Mind Flayers? No? no? Terry shakes his head. Dave checks his phone. So, that's all for this discussion on Illithid Civilizations. There are a lot more kinds of evil in D&D. So, subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be sitting back to discuss one of the most requested topics we've ever received. Homebrew. Uh, if you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, as well as a store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community, so please pass the word to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thank you again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to fridge. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Okay.
So in Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden, there are a couple of other illithid creatures that are worth mentioning, but only kind of. The first is the Gnome Ceramorph, which is essentially just a small-sized Mind Flayer stat block for anyone who wants gnomes or halflings or goblins to be the victims of an illithid invasion. That stat block is essentially the same, right down to the saving throws, innate spellcasting, and most of the attacks. The differences are that the Gnome Ceramorph can be any alignment instead of lawful evil for some unspecified fucking reason. It has a higher AC because its dex modifier is one point higher, and slightly fewer hit points because it's using a D6 hit die and not a Mind Flayer's D8. It also has a minus two to strength compared to a Mind Flayer's zero modifier, which doesn't make an ounce of difference because it doesn't have any attacks that rely on strength. All the other stats are the same, and other than that, the only differences are that Gnome Ceramorphs have 25 feet movement speed instead of 30 feet, they speak gnomish, they get a 5 to stealth checks instead of a plus 4, and they have a fucking laser pistol. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, so the laser pistol attack has a plus 5 to hit, as a range of 40 feet normally, or 120 feet with disadvantage, and it can only hit one target, but it does 3d6 minus 2 radiant damage, and has to adhere to the firearms rules in the DMG. The energy cell in the laser pistol has enough charge for 50 shots, at which point the pistol stops working. And you can't remove it without destroying the pistol. So there's no getting a bunch of energy cells to blow up the Underdark. I can't, for the fucking life of me, understand why Gnome Ceramorphs are a CR5 when a Mind Flayer is a CR7. They have all the same attacks, spells, saves, resistances, and even a better AC to offset the hit point difference. Even when you add the laser pistol attack... They should be more dangerous. I don't understand this. No. The only really the only thing that hurts them is the strength, which doesn't affect any attacks, and the fact that they've got five feet fewer movement. That's it. It baffles my fuck. You know what? Let's move on to the other thing. The other one is called the gnome squiddling, which is when a transformation goes wrong. These creatures have underdeveloped arms and legs and can't move on their own. Instead, their movement relies on the Levitate spell, which they can cast at will. Then they use two big tentacles to drag their floating bodies along surfaces. Gross. Other Elithids will exterminate these things on sight because they're pathetic abominations that will eat any brain they come across, even like insects and, and farm animals. All their stats are terrible, except Con and Wisdom, which are average. They have an AC of 8, 3d6 hit points, and move 15 feet per round. These things are target practice. Their dark vision and telepathy both have half the distance of a mind flare. They have no skill or save bonuses. And the only spell that they can cast is levitate. When it comes to their attacks, they have all the same attacks in theory, but they're all weak. No bonus to hit, minimal damage, and their grapple is going to suck because of the strength. The only thing about these wriggly little wretches that I like is the fact that their mind blast attack is now so weak that it's called mind tickle. I don't mind that. Because they have ten tickles. Yes. So, well, Terry's not fucking impressed. Well, is it only two that they drag across the ground? Well, they, they, they walk with the two. I'm sure they have more tentacles. Um, guys, what the fuck do you do with these these gnome ceramorphs? I, I know what to do. Laser pistols yep. and squidlings. I know what to do with them. All right. G give me your overall thoughts here, Terry. Uh, well, the okay, the laser pistol thing and, and, and that first one, sure, a little bit more interesting, something different to think about. Honestly, I'm probably not going to be jumping the gate to try and use them. Whatever. Good to know they're there. 
But that second one that you mentioned, the name escapes me, I'm sorry. Squidling. Squidling. I would use that for a co- the fact that mind flayers hate them as well. I would take this away from an A versus B combat to an A versus B versus C, where these things are coming out of nowhere and they don't care which brain they're going after. And you have the party versus the mind flayers or whatever, or whatever type of combat they're trying to do. But these other fuckers are also coming out of the woodwork in the room as well and are basically latching onto either side, which is closest. So now there's another dynamic. I'm always going on about movement, trying to finish your turn within a certain place, set the enemy up to be in a certain place, not get stuck by these things yourself. Because these bullshit, low-statted, extra enemies are going to have action economy in numbers and also are taking on both sides. But but it specifically says in lore. I agree with you. That is right. how I would use them. It specifically says in the lore that mind flayers hate them so much that you never come across more than one or two of these at a time. Okay. Because they just they're too dumb to escape. They and they they don't have the physicality to escape. So sometimes they just wriggle free and start floating around the tunnels. Now. Yeah. So you'd have to get creative if you really wanted to push what I said. Yeah. There's probably other creatures you can do that type of thing with. No, I like yeah. what you said. That's that's fun. Yeah. I'm, no, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna build on my dungeon of the Mad Mage going down through the neoth neothalid uh, going through there. There's gonna be these guys coming up from there, and they're gonna be dragging their their tentacles as they come up. These squidlings, because let's be honest here, they leave a trail of slime. Absolutely, right? yeah, 100%. Okay. So this is going to kind of, when they're going through, uh, you know, the, the big tunnel creature uh, and they're stepping on all the soft squishiness, they're just going to assume that it's this slime left over by the, by the squidlings, uh, but it's not. It's going to be this big thing that leads into something far more dangerous. And if they come across these, and I mean, they, they are gutless. There's not a lot to them. Uh, it's going to lure them into a sense of you know, calm, oh, this isn't so bad, this isn't right. so bad, bam, mind flare, right? All right, bear with me. Okay, so first of all, before I, before I get into the squidling, the Ceramorph. For the Ceramorph with the laser pistol, I just want to point out that I'm glad we have something for the small creatures to be mind flayers too. That, sure, that suits me just fine. The laser pistol thing annoyed me at first until I remembered, oh, uh, what's it called? Barrier, barrier reef. There's a barrier cliff. There's a fucking adventure module in AD&D. The first time you ever meet Mind Flayers is in a spaceship where your guys can get a laser pistol. And it's way back in the original. Like, this is classic. It feels a little out of place with laser pistols and and your rangers there with a bow and arrow. Right, right. Right. But there's actually history to this. And it's a freaking mythic, legendary kind of, of item. I have no problem giving this out, especially at low level. Because they won't have this by level twenty, right? Look, as far and as it's I'm not powerful enough to really no, it does three d six minus two. It's just cool, right? Yeah, it's real cool. It's a different yeah. wand, only yeah, it's and, and, and it's radiant damage. Yeah. yeah, right. Like it's not that exactly ridiculous. And so yeah, and the cleric's going, yeah, I've got guiding bolt, so fuck with it. Like it's just a bit of fun for you. It's fine. Yeah. And I mean, it does have to follow the crazy firearm rules from the DMG, um, which are good enough. But when it comes to the squidlings. My great old one packed of the chain warlock that wants a familiar. Oh. Because these things are CR half, so they fit the requirement. Yeah. I'm going to give them a squidling. The mind flayers, can they can they figure out that these squidlings are around? It if, doesn't get into that, but like... If the stats, if I, the I intelligence is below, it's three or under. I just want to know if, if these guys came around, if the mind flayers would have an inkling. Oh, shit. They were there. An inkling, because they're squids. Yeah. 
shut up. <laughs> shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> um, no, it doesn't get into anything in the book about whether or not the others can sense them or whatnot. These things can sense creatures and they can run around and try to fucking eat brains. But fuck, I, I just... God damn gnomes. Who the fuck is Dan? Now I'm mad again. Their intelligence is a negative three. I'm totally going to make one of these guys a fucking familiar. Mm-hmm. It's just going to squeal and cry like a baby with big ass tentacles squalled. Leaving a trail of... But one person whatever. gets attached to it. So yeah. Everybody else got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to... And they'll, you know they're going to name it Squidward. Yeah. Right? Because that's how players be. No, I would be probably naming it Slurm McKenzie or whatever the guy's name is. <laughs> yeah. All right. I like that. We got nudes. We've got sparkling waters. I'll take a nude if there's a nude. There's I gotta cut back on microdosing alcohol. Yeah, right. I don't. Peach. Thank you. Yeah, it works just fine. I don't drink a lot, like excessively, but I drink a little bit often, and that's what's catching up with me. I've been drinking about one or two beer every day for like three weeks, and I'm loving it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you're right. I shouldn't stop. <laughs> That was not my point. Because I've been doing that for 18 months. So So today, guys, I would like to talk about alcoholism and the effect it has on you and your families. (laughs) Do it more! They think you're more fun! (laughs) It's Mimic does not support alcoholism. (laughs) Our lawyers have advised us. Thanks for listening. Bye.